You have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10. When you work for a professional sports organization on game day, everybody has their eyes wide open. In 1985, I landed a job in Atlanta working for the Atlanta Braves. And on game day, there were always these little whispers about who you had seen. Did you see Pete Rose, then the manager for the Cincinnati Reds? Did you get a chance to see Daryl Strawberry or Dwight Gooden, players for the New York Mets? If you were in the press box, heads would always turn. They would be on a swivel to see who might walk in, Hank Aaron, Harry Carey, Vin Scully, Ted Turner, Paul Phillips, all when they entered the press box, heads turned to or away. What often defines greatness or or the measure of greatness in our culture is popularity. So if you have a name, if you have some recognition, heads are turning toward you. During the Advent season and and this passage of Scripture, the point is to take our heads off of the swivel where we're captured by all the different glittering pieces of the world and put it fixed firmly onto one person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes his disciples' heads He's getting them to look at him and then he is going to redefine. He is going to give them a divine definition for true greatness. In the title of the sermon, both for this week and next, a reminder, a request, a reversal and a reason for Christmas Those are the four parts that we're going to walk through, two of them today and two of them next week. And just watch how Jesus operates in context of this conversation with his disciples. So let's uh, pray together before we begin that. Lord, we're going to be very much like the people in this passage And in, in just as real of a way as it happened on that road, we now ask you to come in and place your hands on our heads that swivel around and look for satisfaction in all the fleeting shadows of this world. And to mercifully And tenderly, help us see you and you alone. That's only possible by your hand and your work. And so that's what we pray for in these few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. A reminder. You notice in verse 32, the... The words that Mark records, and they were on the road, they were going up to Jerusalem. Whenever you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. You're ascending up to Jerusalem. It's a 
city on a hill. At the highest point is the temple. Notice the the detail that Mark is writing down. And on this particular journey, at this particular point in the path, Jesus is walking alone. He's pointing out, he's walking ahead here of the disciples. And he seems to be walking at some sort of deliberate pace. Almost like he's, he's marching into some great event. And the disciples are amazed. And either they or those who are followed are actually sort of terrified. They're afraid of this deliberate march that Jesus seems to be on in this particular trip to Jerusalem. And the reminder that we know is Jesus is not just walking towards Jerusalem. He's walking towards the cross. He's walking to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus alone is going to bring and bear your name before God the Father Almighty. And as he nears that point, the pace quickens and there's some new sense of urgency that those who are following have an idea of. We, we get this picture back from the Old Testament, this bearing our names from the priest in Exodus 28. You can read about it later in your reading at home this afternoon. The garments are very detailed that are worn by the high priest. And the high priest, as you know, entered into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And he wore a particular type of dressing. It's very laid out, very specific. And he would bear the names. He would bear the the names of the tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes, into this holy place, into the presence of God. Exodus 28. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Then mount the stones in gold settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod of as a memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron, the high priest, is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before God. Fashion a breastplate for making decisions. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. There are to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart as a continuing memorial before the Lord. And what was one of the unique features of the high priest this one time of year entering into the holy place? He went alone. He alone is bearing the names before God Almighty. And here we see the same thing happening. Jesus is called the great high priest in Hebrews. And when he's going to the cross, he's bearing your name. He's bringing your name into the presence 
of God Almighty. And because he's doing this, because he's on this march, he's going to set millions of prisoners free. Beyond our counting. That's what he's bearing on the road as he goes towards Jerusalem. The second thing we're reminded of in this deliberate march forward is that it recalls back this passage in Isaiah. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting, and I I set my face like a flint, like a stone towards this great city. You might say that from Jesus' birth, he set his face like a flint, like a stone. He's stone-faced. He's determined from his birth to get to this particular point. The pace picks up. He, he's charging ahead like a great military leader ready to go into battle. He's accomplishing an eternal plan. That has been laid out before time began. And just outside the walls of Jerusalem, he's going to face an enemy that would terrify us just to think about. And this victory, as he goes towards the cross, is going to free millions, millions of prisoners. It brings to mind other great military leaders advancing in the face of of great enemy fire. You might remember the the charge up the hill, Bunker's Hill, for Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War in 1898 in the New York Sun. This is their recollection of it. Bullets were raining down on them. Up they went in the face of death. Roosevelt was a hundred feet in the lead, shouting for the men to follow him. Are you afraid to stand up when I'm on horseback, he cried. And finally, his horse was shot out from under him. He charged up the hill on foot. At last, the top of the hill was reached and the position was won. This passage marks the beginning of a charge up another hill. The hill has a cross on top. Jesus is going to win a position. That's not in question. And just before he does, it seems as if he's huddling up his disciples once again. This is the third time he's done it. And he's, he's like a quarterback getting his men in the huddle. And he says, this is the play that's going to be run. We're going to make this play work, fellas. And he gets them all together and says, this is what it's going to be like. We see it in the text. See, we, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered. Jesus is not some kind of random victim. He's he's volunteered before time began for this assignment. And He will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And this is exactly what's going to happen. They will condemn Him to death. 
deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So like a great commander, Jesus in this passage, he's marching ahead and he looks back and he he sees the frightened disciples and he says, come on, men, follow me. I'm going to make it all happen all by myself. Just get in the wake of the way I'm going. That, that's the picture that we have set here in these first few verses. It's right after they break the huddle. James and John come over to Jesus and sort of corner him by himself and make a special request. Now, this is the third time Jesus has said this to his disciples. And we'll notice here as we look back each time he talks about his impending death. We'll note that there's some overt display of selfish ambition by disciples. Let's look back just a couple of pages. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. You remember the passage. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Christ goes on to say, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is the first time he says it. And just after he's done, the breath is not all the way out of his mouth. Peter, he calls Jesus aside and, and he informs Jesus of how the plan's going to unfold. Oh, I, I see you've got a plan here, Jesus, but really, I've got a better plan. This is the best plan. You, you follow my lead now. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And then they come to Capernaum, this hometown. And they he gets to the house. And again, he's he's been at some distance ahead, but he he notices there's been a conversation among his disciples and they they've been chatting back and forth with some kind of energy. And they all get in the house. He says, guys, what were you talking about back there? But they kept quiet. Because on the way they had argued about who was going to be the greatest. Well, Jesus couldn't have been any clearer about what his definition of true greatness was. What what's the divine definition? And he gives this quotable verse. Many people would know it. If anyone wants to be first. okay, guys. Anyone here want to be first? Yes. That's exactly what we've been talking about. I would love to be first. And the whole world is listening because the whole world is dying to be first. And so on these words, the whole world bends its ear in and says, I'd love to understand how to be first. And now that he has their attention... If anyone wants to be first, he must. He must be last. And in case there's any confusion, you have to be the servant of all. 
I, I, don't, I didn't hear that. Did you? You get that message? Where people lean back and they're not quite as anxious to be first in the divine definition of what it means to be first. Sadly, in our text, we learn that as plain and clear as the message was, it just doesn't stick. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. God's just telling it to you over and over and over, and it's just not sticking. And here it's not sticking for the disciples because as soon as they break the huddle, what happens? Here comes James and John, totally convinced of their greatness. They've talked together. James, do you think I'm great? Well, sure, I do think you're great. John, do you think I'm great? I think you're just as great as me. Well, we're great together. Let's get Jesus and tell him how great we are. They, they Notice they corner Jesus away. Not, not just from the other disciples, but from Peter. This is the first time you'll find James and John not together with Peter. Remember when they went into Jairus' daughter's room in Mark chapter 5? Who was there? Jesus went in and who did he take? Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, who goes with him? Peter, James, and John. But, but Jesus is now marching for this overthrow. And whatever this overthrow means, when he's done, when the enemy is defeated, there's really only going to be two great positions of power, the right and the left. And we're brothers. And so we're just going to have to cut Peter out of this deal. You know, most scholars agree that Mark is the scribe of his gospel. But who's the source? Peter. It doesn't appear as if Peter has forgotten this particular event, does it? He seems to have great detail of what happened here. Mark, let me tell you about this one. When I got left out. You see, it's, it's just not hard to speculate about the jealousies, the little cliques, the little power plays that happen in the midst of these 12 men. Isn't that unbelievable? These men, they get together. And what you see time after time, little power plays, little jealousies. Little cliques forming. I don't know if you've ever been in a group. It certainly wouldn't have been a group at a church. But some other outside group of men or women were little cliques. Little power plays. Little jealousies come up. It's like they're they're bubbling. And, and if you ever just take the lid off, it's just ready to boil over. A group of men or a group of women, little clicks, little power plays, little bubbling jealousies, just ready to pop the top off. 
James and John, they corner Jesus and they make this special request. Verse 35, do for us whatever we ask. Imagine going up to the creator of the universe. We only want one thing, Jesus. Do for us whatever I want. James and John, motivated by their worldly definition of greatness, terribly, horribly misguided by their overconfidence in themselves, massively mistaken at their arrogant evaluation that their thinking, it's their thinking that must, their thinking must dictate to Jesus what He's going to do. So they make their one simple request. Jesus, look, by our assessment, we should occupy these two prominent places of power. One to sit at your right, one to sit at your left. And just, you know, we're humble. We don't care who gets what seat. doesn't matter to us. But, but before we're too hard on James and John, although Peter seems to single them out, We see that in verse 41, the the other disciples, they're no different. When they heard about it, did, did they erupt in their memory verse of 935? Was what spilled out of the other disciples? Well, whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. Happy to serve you too. Is that what just came boiling out of the other disciples? No, they were indignant. They were jealousy. This fierce anger was boiling up. And as soon as they heard it, it just popped the lid off and suddenly had the same 12 in the same discussion in verse, in chapter 9. Who's going to be greatest? I thought it was going to be me. And everybody's trying to grab for power. In the memory verse, the clarity that Jesus offered in Mark chapter 9, is like washed away in a tidal wave of jealousy and anger. Jesus' twelve closest friends. These are not the Pharisees. This is His team. This is the team we're marching up the hill with. And as he's marching up the hill, they're all looking around at each other, trying to grab for power. And and my first reaction and just trying to read this, I, I just want to say, how shallow can you possibly be? I mean, it's like the disciples are just stuck on stupid. So every time you just come around to another verse, you just go, why can't you get it? I mean, is this not the height of insensitivity? This isn't the first time. This is the second time he's talking about his death. And what are they doing? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is is marching into the teeth of the enemy. He tells them he's marching into the teeth of the enemy. And they don't even give him the smallest amount of compassion.
Their primary concern is about who? Themselves. When you look at the picture of the disciples in the frame of these verses, I mean, isn't it disturbing? Isn't it even a little disgusting how in prison they are to themselves and they can't even see Jesus? Well, well, that's my first reaction to the text. When I look at the in the frame of the verses and I looked at the picture, that was my first reaction. But then I looked again. I looked again carefully at the picture. It took me some time. And I looked into the picture and I I didn't just see James and John. I didn't just see twelve indignant disciples. I looked in this picture and I saw Paul Phillips in this picture. Because even though you don't see it, bubbling just beneath my surface, ready to boil over at a moment's notice, is some equally disgusting display of self-exaltation. One year after I had become a pastor, I officiated my first funeral. A seven-year-old boy in our community tragically died. And in a matter of a few days, I was thrust behind a pulpit in a sanctuary packed, packed full of bloodshot eyes and numb feelings, a camera outside the door, from the local news channel interviewing people. All, all these people coming in hungry for some kind of answer. How do you make sense of something like this? And, and here's a moment. Here's a moment at a funeral. It's designed to open up the door of grief for the family and friends as they, they stare at this undersized casket. It's a moment designed, it's a powerful moment designed for the hope of the gospel. That these people who are are groping around in the darkness might hear at this moment the gospel that could bring hope in a hopeless situation. Yet I sat on the platform, a song came to a close. In the moments just before I was to speak, I I found myself in a full-scale battle against this thought. When I'm finished speaking, I wonder what people will think about me.
I sat on this platform and I saw this law at work. When I wanted to do good, evil was right there with me. It was a law that was working its way out in the members of my body. It was waging war against my mind. It was trying to make me a prisoner. Saying, Paul, it's not about them. Right here is a chance to promote yourself. And I was waging that war at that moment. That was a prime moment for these people or for the Gospel. When, when all heads were swiveling for a focus point, and the focus point should have been Christ, what I was waging a war against is that it wouldn't be me. Who could rescue me from this body of death? Friends, Visitors, don't, don't read this passage too quickly. L- look at it again. Look at the picture that the frame of these verses provide. Do you see yourself? Do you see that even at your best moments, do you find a law working against you that would rather grab all of the the attention and focus it in towards yourself. Examine your relationships with your friends. Those you work with. Your community group. Your journey group. Look and see if there's petty jealousies, little cliques, little power plays. And if somebody disrupts it, even just for a moment, what's just been bubbling beneath the surface is ready to pour out all over everyone. Look closely at your lifestyle. Look closely at your giving pattern. Look closely even at your service. You you see, because even in our service to God, we're easily caught in this web of self-exaltation. Are you stuck on yourself? The disciples were. Have you been terribly misguided in your own self-confidence? Is your life running on the fuel of your own thinking? That's how you organize your day. That's how you organize your decisions. 
That's the picture we have here of Jesus's 12 closest friends. And do you do your requests of Jesus? Do they sound dreadfully familiar? To James and John, Jesus. Do whatever I ask. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Couldn't offer a greater contrast to this picture. A week and a half, two weeks, several days, we don't know, later from this event. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, you all sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul. My soul is sorrowful. Even to death. Please just remain here. Watch. And Jesus went just a little farther. He fell on the ground and he prayed If it's possible that this hour might pass. Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will. But you, but your will be done. Jesus alone. has come to perfectly fulfill all of those things you and I cannot fulfill. He alone, He puts all of your petty jealousies, all of your little cliques, all of your power plays, He bears that on His shoulders. It's close to His heart. And He alone makes a sacrifice. He doesn't bring a lamb. He is the lamb that is slain. Who who can rescue me from this body of death? Jesus Christ can! Therefore, Therefore, Peter, James, and John. Therefore, Paul Phillips. Therefore, and you insert your name, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for your petty jealousies. Your goofy little power plays. Your hunger for self-exaltation. 
There's no condemnation for those things. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. So you're free. (laughs) You're free from needing to exalt yourself. And you're free to exalt Christ, who is worthy of exaltation. Come, let us adore Him in Him alone. This Christmas is your head on a swivel. You're you're looking underneath the tree trying to hope that there's a box that you can unwrap and fill your empty soul. Is your head on a swivel looking around in the world, looking to hold on to someone or something that finally is going to satisfy? No. Christ today is taking your head. He's got it in your hands. His hands. And He's saying, I'm it! Don't look anywhere else. And please, don't look at yourself. Get away from the mirror. Look at me. Follow me. Do do you know? Are you in touch with yourself to know this? Some of you may not be. That what bubbles just beneath your surface? Do you know what bubbles just beneath your surface? One day, which is coming very quickly for us all, we will be ushered in to the presence of God Almighty. And you will either have to stand there alone or be carried by Christ. Let's pray. God, please help anyone here who thinks they have any hope of standing before you alone. If all you do today is just open up their minds to what's bubbling just beneath the surface. So that they could just get a clearer picture of the darkness in their own soul, even at their best moments. It's dark. Feed their heart with the desperation. Point them like a great arrow, like a a trumpet blast by you saying, this is the way. Come, follow me.
Oh, God, for the disciples in this room who are losing the battle of jealousies and cliques and little power plays. Oh, focus their attention on you in the Garden of Gethsemane. In this time of offering, Lord, I just pray that you would come and speak to each one here in the powerful, life-transforming way that you did with Peter, James, and John. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.